Well, good afternoon. So a couple months ago, uh, a woman called my last church. She said, my father had a stroke and nobody's contacted me to reach out. I've attended and volunteered in and given money to this church for 15 years and I haven't heard from anybody about this. Now, where I'm from in the Midwest, uh, people avoid conflict uh, and they don't like to talk about their emotions. So let me put that through the translator and tell you what she was really saying. What she was really saying is, I'm really angry and I'm dealing with something really hard and your lack of involvement has hurt me and I'm thinking about leaving the church. That's what she was really saying. So I took a deep breath and I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. This is the first that I've heard about it. And now that I know, I'd like to know what I can do to help you and your family. Is there anything specific that I can pray about? And is there anything specific that our church can do? She took a deep breath, but I could tell there was still a lot of anger and hostility. And she didn't offer up anything. As a matter of fact, she said, well, I don't, I guess, I guess there's not really anything that you can do. And it felt like the relationship was in the balance. I took a deep breath and I said, well, I'll tell you what, now that I know about it, here's a couple things that I'll be praying for you and for your family. These last few months, my own father has gone from a nursing home into memory care. And so I know what it's like to talk all day on the phone to social workers. I know what it's like to have care team meetings with doctors and nurses over the phone. I know what it's like to feel helpless. I know what it's like to spend all day driving around. I'm going to pray that you and your siblings can find unity as you discover the course for your father. I'm going to, pay, I'm going to pray that God would give you peace as a caregiver as you tend to all the things that you need to care for, even as you mourn your ailing father. All of a sudden, her attitude was totally different. She said, thank you so much. I'm so glad that I called. Now, what was the difference in, in that conversation? Was it when I offered to pray? Was when I offered the church could maybe do something for that woman? No, it came when she understood that I've been in her shoes. It came when she heard that I had a father in the same situation. Uh, that's what changed the relationship, uh, and that's what uh, changed her attitude. In psychology and in counseling, there's this term called the wounded healer. Have you guys ever heard that before? The wounded healer. We, we seek help. We seek counseling. We want somebody to help us, but we don't want it to be from somebody that hasn't been in our shoes. We don't want it to be from somebody that can't relate to what it is that we're going through. It. This term was probably coined by the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung about 100 years ago. Uh, there's actually an excellent book written by a, a Dutch Catholic priest named uh, Henry Nouwen, and it's by that same title, The Wounded Healer. Listen to this quote uh, from, from that book by Henry Nouwen. He says, Who can save a child from a burning house without themselves taking the risk of being hurt by the flames? Who can listen to a story of loneliness and despair without taking the risk of uh, experiencing similar pains or losing their own precious peace of mind? In short, who can take away suffering 
without entering into it. Of course, it wasn't Carl Jung or Henry Nouwen that invented this concept of the wounded healer because as we think about everything that Scripture reveals to us, almost every page has wisdom coming from somebody who's been in the exact situation that they're speaking to. Right? When we first read through the Bible and we meet the great patriarchs of our faith in the Old Testament, we don't learn about the successes of Moses or Abraham until we first learned about their failures. Uh, when we learn, of, uh, it's, 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 we learn about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness first before he starts to teach anything to us about moral restraint and how to be moral people, right? Like first, he himself has undergone it before he starts to talk to us about it. And uh, all this to say, all this to funnel in, everything we learn in the Old Testament prophets about repenting and looking to the Lord in times of hardship, it comes from people who themselves have gone through tough times for their nation. If you guys haven't already, please open up your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Joel. It's only three chapters long, so if you have to look in the table of contents to find it, nobody's going to... Nobody's going to raise an eyebrow. It's a tough one to find. Uh, you know, this would be a tough sermon to preach in 1986. This would be uh, a tough sermon to preach in 2012. If times were really, really prosperous, people aren't really interested in what it says in the Old Testament prophets. But when our economy is on the brink of ruin, when we're separated from our loved ones, uh, when our cities are in riots... I think that we're interested in what the Bible says from wounded healers who have gone through similar situations. Uh, so the title of our sermon series for this week and the next three weeks is How God Uses Disaster, Discomfort, and Hardship. And hopefully as a, a country we're kind of coming out of disaster and discomfort and hardship. But the last couple months have had a little bit more of those things than we would ever have chosen for ourselves or we've ever wanted to endure. Uh, what I want to start off by establishing is that Joel, the prophet, has gone through what we've gone through. Sometimes even when we hear that word prophet, the image that comes to our mind is just somebody speaking down to us. But Joel, as we're going to see uh, in the next couple minutes, is absolutely a wounded healer. He has gone through in his nation what we are going through in ours. And because of that, God has preserved his words because of the incredible wisdom it has to speak to us in our moment. Uh, our format this afternoon will be as follows. In section one, we'll just talk about the context and the background of what we need to know about this old book, this Old Testament book of Joel, so that we can make sense of what he's speaking to us today. Then in section two, we're going to talk about what, what Joel gave us advice to the original audience that we can extract today for modern relevance and application. So let's just spend the next five or six minutes talking about everything that uh, the original audience of the book of Joel has in common with this moment that we're going through right now. And if we can kind of compare apples to apples and see the similarities of what we're going through and what they went through, I think it'll just make it that much more apparent as to the wisdom that, uh, that the Bible still has for us today. Well, we haven't been hit by locusts, but there's you know, a little bit of uh, comparisons that we'll have to make. Uh, as was read by Stephanie, uh, Israel was hit by a terrible locust plague. 
And let's listen to specifically what it says in Joel 1, 17 to 18. It says, uh, The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods, the storehouses are in ruins, the granaries have been broken down, and the grain has dried up. You know, back then, they didn't have a national treasury. They couldn't send everybody stimulus checks. But they did have granaries that stored seeds and food for times just like this, for locust plagues and for hardships. And so what Joel is poetically saying is there's no unemployment claims that you can make. There's no stimulus check in the mail because all of our reserves are depleted. And uh, fortunately, as a nation, we're not quite at that point. But I'd imagine that everybody here in some way, shape, or form has been hit economically uh, by the events of the last couple of months. And that's exactly what we're seeing is happening here in the book of Joel. It also talks about how things are so bad in this moment in Israel that even the future prosperity and comfort is in doubt. I don't know about you guys, maybe it's not appropriate to make light of it, but the first two or three weeks of uh, social distancing and sheltering in your home was kind of fun, right? It's like I just get to wear sweatpants and catch up on Netflix. But then the reality set in, and we were separated from our loved ones, and uh, our savings started to dwindle, and uh, it started to get scary. Then we checked the headlines and we listened to all the experts and we started to get really worried about the future of our country and what our children and our grandchildren would face. And that's exactly what's happening here in Joel. Listen to Joel 1.5. It says, Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. And if you think about how long it takes to have a prosperous and thriving vineyard, it takes a couple years, right? Especially in the olden days, you had to establish uh, fences to keep the animals out. Uh, It takes a couple years for a a vine to grow to maturity so that the grapes can produce a wine that anybody would want to drink. And then the really good vineyards save the wine a little bit longer after that so it tastes better. And so what Joel is poetically saying here, he's he's saying uh, everybody who enjoys wine, the wine is being snatched from your lips. Do you guys understand? He's saying it's going to be a long time before anybody drinks wine again. He's poetically saying that that we need to be worried for the future of our nation. And then how about this? In Joel 1.9, when it says, Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. Do you guys get what that's saying? It's saying that the, the plague is so bad that people can't even go to church. Does that sound familiar? Right? So here in the book of Joel, we see that uh, even though it's because of locusts, and even though it's a context that's a little bit different than what we've gone through, the nation is, is facing economic ruin, the future prosperity is in doubt, and even the religious rituals have been upended and people haven't even been able to go and, and practice their faith in the way that they practiced it back then. So I think we can all agree that Joel is a wounded healer and he's speaking to a situation that's very, very similar to what we're coming out of from the last few months. So once we've kind of seen that the Bible, even from thousands of years ago, understands the situations and the scenarios that we find ourselves in now, Let's move on to section two and let's look for three things that Joel is teaching the original audience 
about how they can thrive, how they can endure, how they can get through this time of uh, this time of disaster and discomfort and hardship. And as we understand what Joel is speaking to the original audience about how they can get through disaster and hardship, I think we'll find that the Bible is speaking to us as well as to how we can kind of endure these things that we're going through as well. The first thing that jumps out to me is that Joel, this wounded healer, is telling an audience, telling a nation much like ours, speaking to a moment much like this one, and he's calling them to reflect and repent. Have you guys spent any time in the last two and a half months reflecting and repenting on things that you might otherwise, through a normal routine, maybe not have spent time thinking and evaluating? Listen how Joel says it in verses 13 and 14. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. Uh, And he's going on, uh, and it talks about it throughout these three uh, poetic chapters. The nation is being called to think about what's happening, think about what's different than what's normally different, and to repent for the sins that need to be repented of. Personally, there's been a lot of things that I've been reflecting on and repenting of in the last couple of months. The first one was a little bit unexpected. Uh, The first two or three weeks of all this shutdown is when they decided that professional sports was just going to end. And I'd get home. You know, I, I like sports, but I'm not a huge sports guy. But it's kind of a distraction for me. And so I'd get home after a busy day and I'd turn on ESPN and they're just like showing a baseball game from 1970, right? Like there's no new sports happening. And I can't tell you how many times my wife would say, can you help give the kids a bath or can you help put the kids down? And I'd say, in a second, honey. And I'd take out my phone to check on the sports scores and there's no sports scores, right? And after a week or two of that, I started to reflect on how much of my time was just given away to something that didn't really care about me back. How much time I gave to something that could have been better used for other things. So at first I reflected about that, and then I repented of that. And then as I started to kind of get to that dark place that I'm sure many of us have gone to, where, where we start to bargain with God, and we're like, God, if you just let me send my kids back to school, I'll do this. God... <laughs> If you just let my stocks go up to this point, you know, I'll do this, right? Like, we all start to bargain with God, and at that point, I repented for so much of the time that I'd wasted and not given my gifts to God in the way that would have been most useful. How about this? I probably shouldn't say this the first week that I'm preaching, but there's sometimes when it's hard for all of us to go to work, and there's sometimes when it's hard for a pastor to get up in the morning and go to church and everybody wants to talk to you and then you're, you're done with the service and you just want to go home and you're a little bit hungry. And there were times back in January, back in early February, where I'm like, man, I'm so sick of talking to people. I just, I just want to go home. I just want to eat. And then as an extrovert, then as a pastor... Two months without being able to be with people face to face, I reflected on how wrong of an attitude that was. And I repented of that. And I started bargaining with God. Have you just let me be around people again? I'll never, I'll never take it for granted because that's what you've created me to do. So I think the first thing that jumps out to me that Joel is speaking 
uh, to his nation, to his people in times of disaster and discomfort and hardship is that it's an appropriate time to reflect and to repent. And I hope that you guys are able to spend some time doing that in the next couple of weeks. What are the things that you've taken for granted? What are the ways that you haven't best used your gifts for God? And what are the things that you need to repent for so that you can change moving forward? I think Joel speaks to us in our pandemic and he's calling us to reflect and repent. He's speaking that to the original audience and then we can, because of that, understand that he's saying that to us as well. Well, number two, and I think this is just extremely relevant for what we've been going through as a nation this last week. If you guys will turn and look at what it says here in Joel 2.13. It says, rend your hearts and not your garments. And uh, I don't know how many days ago it was, four or five days ago, a man named George Floyd in Minnesota was tragically murdered. Uh, it's a complicated story, but it was ultimately a life that was taken too soon. And because of that, the cities and, 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 and social media is just filled with anger. And so the question comes up, what is the appropriate way to be angry? How should we respond as Christians? How should we respond as Americans when there continues to be injustice that we should all probably contribute more towards trying to... Uh, Injustice that we should all be trying to contribute more to solving. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this imagery of ripping your garments, but in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew culture, if somebody died unjustly, if some travesty had occurred, you were supposed to shave your head, cover yourself in ashes, and rip your clothes in public. And what you are communicating through those things is, I am so utterly devastated that I'm just going to display to my community my utter brokenness. In the last couple of days, as I've been looking on Facebook and reading some of the things that my friends have been posting and talking to other ministers and pastors, the question comes up, what's the appropriate way to respond to injustice during times of disaster and chaos like we're going through right now? And even though this was written probably 2,500 or 3,000 years ago, I think it's profound wisdom for us because Joel is saying, rip your heart, not your garments. He's not saying it's wrong to be angry in public, but he's saying don't just make a public display of anger and then go back to living your life the way that you've always lived it. And I'm not judging anybody here, but I certainly know people who, who, who love to show everybody how angry they are because we're living in a cultural moment where the best way to show other people that you're culturally and socially evolved is to be angry. And if you show other people that you're angry about stuff, you're basically saying, well, I can't be part of the problem. I'm not, I'm not responsible for racism because look how angry I am, right? Nobody who's part of the problem could be as angry as I am right now. But Joel 2.13, over 2,000 years ago, is saying, don't just make a public display of your anger, but let your heart be ripped so that you change the way that you look at and respond to the oppressed and the needy as well. And I think there's just so much beauty in that, specifically considering how ancient it is. Well, I think the third thing that Joel speaks to us today that uh, we can take with us this afternoon uh, is he says it's okay to have hope. 
We're, we're, we're starting to open up our restaurants. We're starting to uh, talk to people that we meet in the parks again. But three, four weeks ago, it was sometimes a, a reasonable question to ask of, of, is hope appropriate? Is life as we know it going to resume in the ways that we're familiar with? And in Joel 2, 28 to 32, he just has a beautifully eloquent way of saying, it's okay to be hopeful in down times. It's okay as God's people to have hope. And he beautifully uh, uses this, uh, this, this concept that's used throughout the Old Testament. All the way throughout the Old Testament, it talks about the day of the Lord. And it's kind of hard to define what it means when somebody talks about the day of the Lord because it's used in a lot of ways. And even in the Old Testament, it's used in past, present, and future tenses. But in all of those situations, the day of the Lord is something that God's people in Scripture use to describe God's judgment. When, God's, when God comes and judges and saves. And uh, so in uh, Joel chapter 2 and Joel chapter 3, he's speaking to this, this people in a moment much like this. The country is just on the brink of ruin. And he says it's okay to hope in the day of the Lord. Even in a time of empty, even in a time of isolation, it's okay for God's people to look forward to and to have hope in a fullness in the future that God is going to provide. So let's just wrap up with this. Let's, uh, let's hit our conclusion here. In Acts chapter 2, something really unexpected happens. And even though I've been reading about it all week, I haven't even found a great explanation for exactly what it means. But it's Pentecost. And today is Pentecost Sunday, and so churches around the world are celebrating this kind of strange story from Acts 2 where all these different men and women of different cultures come together and they're, they're from different regions and the Holy Spirit translates their languages and they can all understand each other. And the apostles step up and Peter gives this sermon about, uh, uh, about how the church is being born. And the church as we know it is starting on that day. And in that sermon, Peter talks about the day of the Lord having arrived and he actually quotes Joel. So where Joel, in this time of disaster and locust storms and dark times, is talking about the hope that one day fullness will come, one day our hopes will be fulfilled, Peter quotes that, talking about Jesus Christ, and he says the day of the Lord has arrived. The fullness that we long for is possible through the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to spend the next three weeks continuing to talk about these prophets, these wounded healers that have gone through national moments just as low as the one that we're going through now. But our target or the thing that we're going to be really trying to draw out is how they're ultimately pointing God's people to how the arrival of Jesus Christ is our ultimate experience of that hope and that fullness that we're all longing for. Let's wrap up with this. Let's make this our concluding thought. If the, the title of our sermon series is How Does God Use Disaster and Discomfort and Hardship? I just want you to take a moment to reflect on that and ask yourself, what are some of the things that God maybe has been trying to accomplish in your life in these last couple of months of discomfort and hardship. And listen to what it says here in Joel 3.16 for our final thought. Thus 
The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And so what Joel is saying here is that it's in the times of discomfort and hardship that God will teach you that he is your holy refuge. Now that seems so counterintuitive, does it not? It seems to me that God will teach me that I can trust him if everything's great and my bank account's full and my family's healthy and everything's prosperous. But Joel, someone with a lot more insight than myself, is saying that it's in these times of emptiness and despair and discomfort that God is going to teach us that he is our holy refuge. Uh, the last two and a half months have been really hard for my wife and I. We've been trying to sell a house. We've been worried that it might not sell because of COVID-19. We don't really have the means to pay two mortgages. We're leaving uh, 13 years of friends and family in the Midwest to come to a new place. She works as an emergency room nurse, and so she's on the front lines of this pandemic. Uh, I have my father who's ailing, I have not been able to see for over two months because of the restrictions and the list goes on and on. There were nights that we just came home and we put the kids to bed and we looked at each other and we didn't know if we would have enough composure to get through the night or the next day. And uh, what we do, this is, this is going to sound like I'm trying to, to uh, be overly complimentary. We would actually go onto YouTube or Vimeo and we would put on the Big Sky Christian Fellowship worship set from that Sunday. And we would just sit there in the dark and we would listen to those beautiful voices singing those Christ-centered lyrics. And in those moments, we had a comprehension of how God is our holy refuge in a depth, in a sincerity that we never would have experienced in times of prosperity. Does that make sense? So the concluding thought this morning is that Joel is teaching us in his three-chapter prophetic book that it's in the times of the disaster and the discomfort and the uncertainty that God establishes himself as our holy refuge. That's been my journey the last two months, and I hope that's something that you're able to take out of this COVID-19 thing as well. So at this time, I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and close us with another song. And as they do, uh, the book of Joel is not something that we can read through verse by verse uh, just in one sermon. But I hope that you guys are inspired to go home and read it a little bit more. And as you read through those incredible ups and downs that Israel experienced over 2,500 years ago, I hope that you have God speak a couple things into your mind. First of all, we're, we're not in an unprecedented situation. God's people have faced things like this before. Secondly, the Bible is not just something that preaches down to us, but it's advice from wounded healers that know what you're going through and have experienced what you're feeling. And, uh, and finally, it's in times like this that God establishes himself as our refuge.